Thursday today, I'm going to look at the subject of parenting from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22. We've read Proverbs chapter 4 already this morning, the theme of which is wisdom, a family tradition. I would like to take the time, sometime, to work through Proverbs 1 through 9, which in some sense is capsulized in Proverbs chapter 4. But in Proverbs chapter one, chapters 1 through 9, we have the sage giving a series of 10 lectures to his son. And so they begin typically, my son, hear my words, give your ear to wisdom. And he gives them these lectures concerning the value of wisdom. And he teaches his son in various ways. And, and just in terms of practical tips, uh, counsel for parenting, Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 are very helpful in that regard to see a model of how a, a faithful father takes his son through the various situations in life, applying godly wisdom to it. In chapter 4 that we've read, the theme is, as I say, something like wisdom, a family tradition. Let me teach you the wisdom that my father taught me, and that his father taught him. This is the way we live, and this is what we have proven to be the wise way of living. That kind of atmosphere permeates Proverbs. When we get to chapter 10 in Proverbs, we have the Proverbs proper. That is, we have proverbial sayings. The first nine chapters are these lectures that are given by the sage to his son concerning wisdom. But then in the proverbial section through the book, beginning in chapter 10, we have many isolated sayings Proverbs regarding wisdom, regarding parenting, regarding the fool, regarding the wise man, and so on. And much of that comes together in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15, which is what we'll spend some time on today. I addressed this passage last year in a message briefly. I'm going to expand on it this morning. And then the plan is um, this summer, or by the fall at least, to visit the subject of parenting uh, at least two more times for the sake especially of the younger parents in the congregation. But today, the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting. Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Or as we have in the New National Version, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the Father that we have in you. We are thankful that you are the God who is ruler over all, the God who is exalted, the God who is holy, yet the God who is kind and good and loving, and that you have shown to us what it is to be a father in your love for us, your care for us, your provisions for us in every way. We thank you that we can look to you and have this great honor of calling you father and knowing that we are your children whom you love. We pray that this model of fathering that we find in you in the scriptures will be more and more reflected in those of us who are earthly fathers. We pray that you will give us success in it 
to your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember your childhood well enough to recall how much you needed your parents. Now, of course, when we were firstborn, infants, we're utterly dependent on our parents for everything. We needed them for absolutely everything. We needed them to clothe us, shelter us, to feed us, take care of the consequences. We needed our parents for absolutely everything. And it was a long time, really, until we were independent in any sense. By the time we were walking, Dad and Mom, we needed Dad and Mom to micromanage every moment of our entire day. Because we are likely to do things that would harm ourselves. We could run headlong off the top of the stairs. You can talk to Jimmy about that. We were likely to do things like eat ant poison. You can talk to my brother about that. Num num, Daddy, num num. We're likely to play with sharp objects that we don't know will hurt us. We're likely to try to see what we can fit into this little electrical outlet, which looks so fascinating. We're likely to do all kinds of things that are just not in our own self-interest. And you may as well admit it, at least in a moment of humility, that it was a long time before you were safe. And for a long time, you were very likely to make decisions and choices which were not in your own best interests. And when you did, you still wondered why in the world you still weren't happy. And somehow we are slow to get this connection that stupid choices make us unhappy. We can't figure it out that after this stupid choice we're still unhappy. We don't quite get why. It's a long time before we really catch on that we need help. Now, as we grew, we began to shed some of that foolishness until finally we were convinced that it was our parents who were stupid. And it was really quite a while before we, it dawned on us that mom and dad had grown up now too and they got smart. And through your teen years and beyond, it never really occurred to you, probably, that your parents really were more interested in your well-being and your happiness than you were. It certainly never occurred to you that you needed your dad and mom during those years to give you direction. And all of this precisely because foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. And most foolish of all, you were likely to think that you could be happy and find fulfillment and satisfaction and highest contentment without God. You were likely to think that temporal pleasures really did outweigh eternal pleasures. And again, all of that because foolishness is found in the heart. I would love to take the time, another hour this morning, I won't, don't worry, but I would love to take another hour this morning 
and trace out in the book of Proverbs its teachings regarding foolishness and wisdom. This contrast that runs through the book. This is called wisdom literature, as you know. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs, wisdom in the Old Testament generally is not simply knowledge, of course, but it is knowledge applied. It has to do with a skill, skillful living. That's what wisdom is. The skill in living successfully before God, and so finding highest happiness and contentment and satisfaction. The theme of the book of Proverbs is stated for us very crisply. If you'd like to look back in Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline, or as some of the versions, wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, that is a right thinking about God and a right placing of yourself in submission before God, that's the prerequisite. That's just the first step, the, the foundational building block in knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You don't have wisdom. You don't begin in real knowledge or wisdom until you are situated rightly before God. And so the, the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning, the first step, the foundational step of wisdom. And by contrast, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now ask yourself a question. Why would anyone despise wisdom? Answer, because he's a fool. And that's the nature of the fool in the book of Proverbs. He is not only one who does that which is morally wrong, but he's one who acts in a way that's contrary to his own best self-interest. He's a fool in every sense of the term. Not only is he immoral and in opposition and rebellion against God, but he does it in spite of the fact that it's not in his best interest to do so. And you have that running through the book of Proverbs as these two layers of, of ethics, these two layers of morality, two considerations to be held in mind in all moral and ethical choices. Not only is that particular action wrong, but it's not in my best interest to do it. And on the other hand, not only is wisdom that which is morally right and pleasing to God, but it's in my best, oh, my own self-interest to do it. It's wisdom. But it's a real fool who despises wisdom and instruction. And we have that in the book of Proverbs. And so, as I say, I'd like to run that through the book of Proverbs at some point, but I'll just give you a snapshot of it here. But, but to show what the fool then does and what characterizes the fool in the book of Proverbs. The bottom of the line of it all, the fool, the book of Proverbs, has an inward bias against God and for sin. The fool is one who has an inward bias against God and towards sin. And so, for example, in Proverbs 14, verse 16, the fool is one who sins with confidence. Like a child running headlong over the top of the stairs. He just doesn't know better. Or perhaps better, like that guy in high school and he's considering doing something and you warn him about the dangers of it all. He says, I don't care. 
describes the fool as one who is unconcerned with wisdom. He's unconcerned with God. The fool is one who will mock righteousness. The fool is one who will make light of sin. Foolishness, the book of Proverbs, is that which animates and ultimately destroys the wicked. Proverbs 5.23 Foolishness shows itself in a propensity to evil. Foolishness shows itself in a preference for sin. Foolishness shows itself in a hatred of being told not to sin. The fool is one who is even implacably sinful. The fool, uh, foolishness shows itself in deceit, sinful speech, other kinds of sinful activities. In other words, foolishness in the book of Proverbs is just that. It's stupidity, it's immorality, but it is self-destructive immorality. It is the one who is bent on sin, away from God, and that despite the fact that it's contrary to his own best interests. And the sobering part of all of that is what we find here in Proverbs 22 and verse 15. That foolishness, that foolishness that I've just been describing, that foolishness is found in the heart of every child. We call this the doctrine of original sin. We who are Calvinists like to speak of it in terms of total depravity as well, just to emphasize the fact that this Infection of sin has affected every aspect of our being, every aspect of our psyche. Our thinking is bent towards sin. Our affections are bent towards sin. Our will is bent towards sin. It is this original indwelling principle of sin that works its way out in every part of our being. So that we are not sinners because we sin, but very simply, we sin because we're sinners. I had to teach my children how to dress themselves. I had to teach my children how to brush their teeth. I had to teach them how to be respectful to their parents. I had to teach them how to get along with one another. I had to teach them all kinds of things, but I never had to teach my children, here's how you be greedy, here's how to fight with your sister, here's how to be disrespectful to your parents, here's how to throw a Ever tantrum. I never had to teach them any of that. Here's how you lust. None of us had to be taught any of that. We come by naturally. That's what we call original sin. When our children are young. I'm sure you, you've done this as well. You were parents as we did. You go in and look at them while they're sleeping in the crib. You just adore them. You just adore them. And you think this. They are so innocent. And of course there's a sense in which that's right. They have not yet been exposed in experience to much sin. But we forget that in their heart already is a drive and a bias that will take them away from God as trust as they can. So we hope and we pray even that our children will not drift morally or spiritually. Again, forgetting that the drive to do so is already bound in their hearts and all they lack is the opportunity. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. 
We do not start out as a clean slate, polluted only as we are exposed to wrong influences. Those early tantrums that your children throw do not arise out of a vacuum. It's not always because they're hungry. And it's an awful realization, just an awful realization, especially if we have children who are young. It is an awful realization, so awful we tend not to consider it, even though we see it every day, that this precious child whom we adore so much with all of our heart, left to himself, will choose hell. That's He will think that his highest pleasure will be found in sin. He will think that his highest happiness will be found away from God. He'll think that. And he will be so convinced of it, down to his socks, that he will fight you over it. And when you try to argue with your child over it, it, they're willing to put the relationship on the rocks, aren't they? They're so convinced that their highest happiness is found away from God. And they will rebel, not only against you, but away from God, thinking all the while that it is in their best interests. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. You are children here. Let me talk to you for just a second. If you have any self-interest, you teenagers listen as well, if you have any concern at all for your own happiness, recognize how much you need dad and mom. Recognize how much you need rescue from yourselves. And parents, if you would be successful in parenting, you must come to grips with this sobering truth. Foolishness is bound in the heart of my child. We must understand that this precious gift from God will destroy himself. He will ruin his own happiness, temporal and eternal happiness, because he thinks he knows best how to find happiness. And it is your responsibility as a parent to stand between him your child, and his own self-destruction, and simply say, I won't let you go there. I don't care how determined you are. Foolishness is found in your heart, and I'll do all I can to prevent it. That's the responsibility of the parent, to teach and to train and to instruct and admonish and even discipline, even using the rod. And in every possible way, steer our children away from the foolishness that is inbred in them, inbred in all of us, and which would take us away from God with a vengeance. This and nothing less is our role as a father and mother, to become for your children the means of God's saving, protecting, and preserving grace. The means that God will use to keep them from pursuing their foolishness and destroying themselves temporally and eternally. 
And so then we're not surprised to read in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 29, verse 15, a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. Or, we look back in this chapter earlier, chapter 22 and verse 6, train a child in the way that he should go. You'll notice when you read Ryle's booklet that he emphasizes here that the proverb says, train up a child in the way that he should go, not in the way that he would go. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Many years ago, I preached a sermon from Samuel on Eli and his children. You remember how his grown sons were allowed to do things that were wrong, and Eli himself was held responsible for it. The title of the sermon simply was, Restrain Your Son. Restrain Your Son. Use what leverage you have. Restrain Your Son. Foolishness is bound in the heart. So let me say it this way. Make it very plain. I've heard this kind of talking among Christians. I've heard it here at RBC, and I think you, you know better. But just to emphasize the point, if you view your role as a parent, now let me say it this way. If you think that by the time your children are grown and gone, you have successfully kept them from the law, problems with the law, successfully kept your daughter from becoming pregnant, successfully kept your son from making another girl pregnant, or kept them from drugs, and if that is your goal in parenting, you're aiming way too low. You're aiming way too low. I'm painfully aware that there are no guarantees. Many, in the terms of what the Proverbs, many a wise father has had a foolish son. And I'm painfully aware there are no guarantees. And at the end of the day, we are utterly dependent on God's mercy in this. But in terms of your goal as a parent, don't shoot that low. Anybody in the world can shoot for that goal. What you are aiming for is nothing less than to see your son and your daughter bow their knee before the Lord Jesus and surrender to him until they are safely and joyfully in Christ. That's your goal. For my part, I'm very thankful that I had parents like that. We had the goals set right. We had a wonderful, fun family home. Filled with love. But the parents were not, my parents were not the kind that felt an obligation to give me everything I wanted. I'm old enough now to appreciate that. I shed at least a little bit of a foolishness. They were parents who had not bought in to the idea that it's harmful to your child psychologically to say no or to say that's wrong or that's bad. So you just simply say, that's unacceptable. They were very careful to tell me that certain behavior was bad, that it was sinful, that it was wrong, and it would not be tolerated. And they were parents who were very careful to take me in my understanding from the very beginning to a knowledge of Christ. My mom tells me that she explained the gospel to me while I was still in the hospital before I was even home. As I told you before, I don't remember that very well. 
that's the kind of home that I had, and I'm very thankful for it. I heard the gospel from, from before I could understand words, and I had parents who loved us, and who cared for us in every way, and who saw to it that their children be brought up to know God, so far as it lay with them. For my part, when God gave me a wife and then gave us children of our own, I resolved that if they will remember anything about me, it will be that I pointed them to Jesus Christ. I was dreadfully aware, as my children were growing up, dreadfully aware that there were no guarantees. And all of this depends on God's mercy. But so far as everything, anything lay within me to become the means that God would use, I resolved that if they were going to turn away from Christ, turn away from the gospel that they've heard all of their lives, they would not be able in their older years to point back and say, I didn't follow it in mom and dad's religion because they... As they look back, they would be able to say, Mom and Dad loved Christ. Mom and Dad loved the gospel for whatever faults or whatever failures, and we had them. They loved the gospel. They loved to pray. They loved God. And they were concerned for their children to follow God. I can't tell you, I wish I could, I can't tell you that we were experts. tell you that we made real attempt to become experts, consciously. We would lie awake at night, lying in bed, talking, how's Jimmy, how's Gina, where are they? There's something we should be doing, something we should be addressing. How can we better steer them along to where they should be? We would talk to successful Christian parents, ask them, what'd you do? How'd you do it? I remember many times going through scriptures, and particularly the book of Proverbs, pulling out every verse that had to do with parenting, whether it was specifically on discipline or just parenting in general, pulling them out and just meditating over them and asking, what, what kind of instruction is this given, giving me that I need to correct or that I should give more attention to? Parents, your children are worth that. Stakes are high. Love them too much not to. Give every effort to it. And so then, let me give you just two quick exhortations, followed by a little bit more, so don't get excited. Just two quick exhortations in regard to all of this, uh, just to drive all of this. Number one, take your responsibility seriously. Don't be naive in approaching parenting. If successful parenting does not just happen. Your children and their lives and their eternity are worth the effort to put into this. Don't approach it naively thinking that they'll turn out all right. Don't ever let yourself fall into the mind of thinking, even subconsciously, that, well, because we're Christians, we go to a gospel church and all that, that will just kind of soak in with them put effort into it. Don't naively go with the flow, but think, evaluate, assess your children, 
think and evaluate and assess yourselves as parents. What should we do? What are we doing that we shouldn't do? Give it work. Give it attention. Put effort into it. Take your responsibility seriously. And number two, determine that you will learn from God how to rear your children. Determine that you will learn from God how to rear your children. Now, this is needed in every aspect of life, that we learn how to do whatever it is from God. But here, especially, our society comes at us with a vengeance. If your children go to the public schools, you need to know, you need to know this, that the thinking on the part of much of the system is that what they need to do is rescue your children from you. Because you've got it wrong. You're a Christian. And with the kind of thinking that our society has about child rearing, which, by the way, just amazes me. They have such a lousy track record, and they speak with such confidence anyway. It's just incredible to me. The further they get away from divine instruction, the further they get away from Scripture, the worse their record gets, and the more they speak with confidence as though they're right. It's just mind-boggling. But that kind of thinking pervades our atmosphere so much that it affects Christians. And you've got to be careful against it, and you've got consciously to say, I'm going to learn how to rear my children, and I'll learn it from God. The one who has created the home, the one who truly knows. Don't allow yourself to think that you already know. Give effort to it. Soak your mind in the scriptures over it. And simply say that for the sake of my children and their eternal welfare, I will see to it that God's counsel reigns in my heart. And shape your whole approach to parenting in a way that God has prescribed for it. Now, I'm sure you all agree with all of that. But we need those reminders, don't we? We need those reminders because we can be lazy and we can be naive. After all, foolishness is bound in our hearts as well. It's not yet been totally eradicated. All right, now, in the coming months, I don't know exactly when, but the summer or the fall, we'll deal with two more areas of parenting specifically. We'll deal with religious instruction in the home, what you should be doing and what you should not be doing, mistakes that can be avoided, things like that. And we'll also deal with the subject of discipline and hopefully some practical aspects regarding all of that. For now, let me just give you quickly four, four broad areas of attention that you can give in your home. These are the four categories that I use in my home. Four broad areas of attention, two of which are explicitly commanded in Scripture, one of which is close to explicitly commanded in Scripture, it's implicit everywhere. And the fourth one which is well, I think you'll agree it's implicit somehow. Number one, four broad areas of attention. I, I'm not offering this as a formula for success in the home, just four areas of attention that are very needed for you to give. Number one, love. Love. This is not specifically commanded of parents, but I think you'll agree with me clearly this is the implicit everywhere in the scriptures. But your home wants to have a prevailing atmosphere of love. When my children were young and growing up, 
I wanted them to know, and I wanted them to not just to know it, but to know it intuitively. I wanted them to feel that if no one else on earth liked them at home, they were loved desperately just because of who they were. Unless I was out of town, my children never went a day of their lives without hearing many times from both of their parents, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you so much, I love you so much. I want the home to have a prevailing atmosphere of love. And so we play and we have fun and we cuddle and we have affection and we kiss and we hug and we do all of those things that parents do. You wrestle, you tease, you do all of those things that make the home an atmosphere, have an atmosphere of love. You try your best not to spoil them. That's hard. I know, that's hard. You see something in the store that you know they'll like and you want to buy it for them. And you do it with the next one. You want to buy that for them as well. It's hard not to spoil them. But you try not to spoil them, but you try to show your love in every conceivable way that you can. On one level, that prevailing atmosphere of love is necessary in order to temper discipline. If you don't have a prevailing atmosphere of love, you'll end up with a bare, a raw authoritarianism in the home, which will never work. It will never work. And Paul alludes to that in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, Father, do not exasperate your children. Do not exasperate your children. We'll, we'll talk more about discipline another time. But your discipline will never work without a prevailing atmosphere of love. More than that, a prevailing atmosphere of love is essential to their own um, healthy personal development, and their own preparation for their own homes. Children coming from a loving home have a distinct advantage over those who do not. It's just fact, isn't it? God's grace has overcome all, overcome all kinds of things. And we've seen it. But all else being equal, a child coming from a loving home has huge advantages for those who do not. So model for them the love of God. Dads, make it such that when your children learn that God is a father, they get it. Number one, love. Number two, now, I don't know a better word to do this. I'm trying to find a big word that captures the whole thing, so I'll just say it this way. Religion. Religion. Or, if you prefer, Christian devotion. Christian devotion. Summarized, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. In that little booklet, The Duties of Parents, that I recommended for you, did I mention that it's important for you to read that? Lyle says, one of his, these chapters are like a page or two each, so he's very short. But one of his chapters, he, he mentions this, he stresses it. Train your children with this thought continually before your eyes, that the soul of your children is the first thing to be considered. The soul of your children is the first thing to be considered. And you let that shape everything else that you do. It might be good. I think it might be helpful for us if we were, as parents, to put on the walls of our house, maybe on the children's walls, maybe in our own bedroom walls, a plaque, a picture, in bold letters, 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And let that shape our approach to parenting. The first thing to be considered is their souls. And so bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, this is important for Calvinists. This is not the time, parents, this is not the time to hesitate because of questions about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's not time for it. All you need to know is that God has appointed means to his decreed ends, and that one of the means that he has appointed is the influence of parents training their children in the gospel. And so saturate their minds with the gospel. Saturate their minds with the gospel. Let them see in your life that you love Christ. Let them see in your life that you value God. You value the gospel. Let them see in your own relationship the attractiveness of Christ. Become for them the means of their conversion. Save your children. Now, you think that oversteps the bounds using the language that way? Save your children. Yes, I realize only God can do the saving. That's the language Paul uses, though, in uh, his letter to Timothy. If you heed yourself and your doctrine, or in doing so, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Of course, ultimately, God does the saving. But this is the means, and this is your role that God uses in the salvation of the lost. This is not the time to be hesitating about questions of divine sovereignty and human inability. If you believe anything, believe in the power of the gospel. Don't we believe that the, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation? Turn it loose. Put it to work. Expose your children to it continuously. Make sure they understand that not only is foolishness bound in their heart and they are sinners, Make sure that God has sent a Savior who's given himself for sinners. He's a sufficient Savior, and he's a willing Savior, and he's available to all to come to him by faith. Make sure they know that well. Number three, you knew I'd get to this. Love, religion, or Christian devotion. Number three, discipline. Discipline. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. If ever we found ourselves at odds with the world, it's here. It's barely legal. Barely legal. Just thank your kids. Officially, it is legal. But just try it. You'll be in trouble. Unless someone reports you for spanking, you'll be in trouble. It's barely legal out there. If ever we found ourselves at odds with the world, it's here. But we must, and you must, you must, you must, settle in your minds. Who knows better? God has said, the rod of correction will drive it far from it. I don't understand the connection. I don't know how we got wired the way we did that working there affects the heart. I don't get that. I don't have to. God has said, foolishness is found in the heart of the child with the rod of correction is one of the means that he uses to drive foolishness out. Whether I understand it or not, it's quite a secondary issue. I should acknowledge up front God knows better. I'll trust him. I wish I had the time, I don't. But let me just give you a couple of passages regarding discipline in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 19, verse 18. I might have gone too fast. Proverbs 13, 24. 
was kind of gothic home, was kind of bright, and he didn't turn out good. But he, in fact, did turn from the way that he should go. Doesn't this proverb say that he will not turn from it? And this is somehow always that proverb that we go to to wonder if proverbs are really true. And the thing, of course, to remember is simply, proverbs are not promises. They're proverbs. They're just pithy sayings summarizing the way things are. Exceptions? Sure, there are exceptions. Sure, there are exceptions. But this is the way things go. Prepare the child the way he should go, and he's old, he'll have to part from it. This is a normal course. And what God is offering here is for the parents to become the means of saving their children. Now, at the end of the day, you realize, and you better realize, that their salvation depends upon the work of a sovereign, merciful God. And so you pray. But if you believe that salvation for your children can only come from God, then you will be very diligent to use every means that that God has ordered to their salvation. Prayer, evangelism, discipline, love, religion, discipline, bond. Here you find the means of evangelism. That's all part of this approach to parenting to bring our kids into the knowledge of God. So set your goals high. What I want for my children, what I want for my son, what I want for my daughter, and then picture in your mind where they should be at age 18, at age 22. And come back and start ordering life accordingly. Train the child in the way that he should go. Praying all the while that God will be merciful and use you as the means of your child's conversion. May God do it. Let's pray. Our Father, there are few subjects that we could address that would be more tender to our hearts than the welfare of our children. Lord, I thank you for the parents at RBC. So many of them we see so diligent in applying the means that you've ordered to the conversion of their children. Faithful in bringing them to church, faithful in their family devotions, memorizing scripture, catechism, various means. Lord, I thank you for it. I pray that you'll bless them in it. Lord, we have asked many times that you will do nothing less than save every one of the children of RBC. We ask that you would be merciful to them, open their hearts, spare them from the foolishness that's found in their hearts, bring them joyfully and safely in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Take your hymnals, if you will, please. Turn to number 521.